Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. And thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Libramira Rodolska about addiction and weakness of will. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for inviting me back. I'm uh, very pleased to be with you and your listeners. And, yeah, so could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Yes, of course. So my first encounters with philosophy happened quite early on when I was still at high school. The program of study we had there centered on classical civilizations and languages and as part of the endeavor to make us better understand how the ancient Greeks and Romans saw themselves and the world they inhabited, we read some philosophy in the original. I was fascinated by Plato's early dialogues where Socrates successfully challenges the received ideas of his day about what courage, justice, or piety is even though these challenges met with a great deal of animosity. Later on, as a philosophy undergraduate at the University of Sofia, my interest in ancient philosophy was complemented by growing enthusiasm for analytic ethics and philosophy of mind, which became the core of my research from graduate school on. Historically speaking, that might seem quite a leap, We are talking about questions and debates separated by more than 2,000 years, and yet there is quite clearly a shared ground that is being part of recognizably the same intellectual practice. So ancient philosophers, and in particular Aristotle, remained present in my work to this day, but as interlocutors rather than subjects of scholarly interpretation. This kind of dialogue forms the bedrock of analytic Aristotelianism, the methodology I developed and employed in later works, including my 2013 book on addiction and weakness of will. But it was already there in a budding form in my PhD project on Aristotle and the moral philosophy of today, which I completed at the École des Autitudes en Sciences Sociales in Paris, and was later published uh, under the title L'actualité d'Aristotle morale in French. So in this work, I address the central issue in analytic ethics and philosophy of minds, that is, how to reconcile two compelling yet seemingly contrasting views on moral judgment as a piece of knowledge about what is right or good on the one hand, and on the other, as an expression of personal commitment to do what we deem to be right or good. The solution I put forward, built on resources from Aristotle's work, especially the concept of practical knowledge, where asserting what the case is and commitment to action go hand in hand. 
After completing my PhD, I joined the academic community of Cambridge University, first as a research fellow at Clare Hall. I was then member of the Cambridge Faculty of Philosophy until 2013, when I took up my current position at the University of Kent in Canterbury. At Cambridge, I had the chance to interact and collaborate with colleagues from a variety of disciplines and, in particular, psychiatrists and neuroscientists. These interactions helped me appreciate the philosophical significance of mental disorders for re-examining from a fresh angle our fundamental presuppositions about the nature and scope of agency, responsibility, and autonomy. This interest developed into a long-term project of mine, which I'm still working on. So what was it that inspired you to write Addiction and Weakness of Will? Yes, so in philosophy, addiction and weakness of will are typically considered as two separate phenomena. They are often discussed in different literatures, answering different research questions. For instance, addiction is primarily addressed in philosophy of science or philosophy of law. Central questions include, is addiction properly classified as a psychiatric disorder? What are the strengths and weaknesses of alternative strategies to tackle addiction, such as criminalizing it or treating it clinically or engaging in some kind of public health or social interventions? By contrast, weakness of will is discussed in the context of more theoretical projects in philosophy of mind sometimes querying the very possibility of it as a real-life phenomenon. When this is acknowledged, discussions tend to focus on questions such as how can weakness of will be intelligible and yet be fundamentally irrational? Or what distinguishes weakness of will from other forms of irrationality such as procrastination or indecision or self-deception? In the few philosophical works discussing both addiction and weakness of will, they were brought together in terms of clear contrast. For instance, a weak-willed person has the kind of control over their actions that a person with addiction is supposed to lack. I found this understanding of either phenomenon unsatisfactory. I also thought that the underlying difficulty has to do with the philosophical psychology that treats knowledge of what's right as separate from any motivation to actually do the right thing the issue I addressed in my PhD project. What's more, looking at the ancient sources, we can see that acrasia, which is standardly translated into English as weakness of will, has been extensively debated. Yet the range of phenomena that the ancients considered as much broader than acting against one's better judgment, which is the standard contemporary definition of weakness of will. In fact, many of the examples of acrasia given by the ancients would be more readily fitting some ordinary notions of addiction in terms of something tempting and difficult to resist than philosophical conceptions of weakness of will. All of this encouraged me to investigate a possible connection between weakness of will and addiction as two instances of conflicted agency that might be on the same spectrum, as it were, rather than two separate phenomena, as they were previously treated in analytic philosophy. How do you think society as a whole views addiction? I think that uh, there are uh, several trends in social attitudes towards addiction, depending on what reference frame is taken as the most relevant. 
public health or clinical practice or the criminal law. Another important factor is the kind of cases people are thinking of as representative. Misuse of controlled substances, alcohol, cigarettes, or indeed so-called behavioral additions such as gambling. These trends are nevertheless related. In public discourse, for instance, addiction is routinely associated with increased burden to national health and social services, loss of productivity, but also the commission of more or less violent offenses that require robust response from law enforcement. These uniformly negative connotations reinform some stigmatizing attitudes that not only discourage people from seeking professional help, but also may stand in the way of successful recovery a problem compounded by relatively high relapse rates. In a recent paper I co-authored with a colleagues from psychiatry, we showed that these different trends all rest on an implicit notion of control over one's actions, which is problematic and may undermine recovery. This is where conceptual resources from philosophy can be particularly helpful, avoiding the potentially helpful notion of control and supporting a holistic engagement with people for whom addiction is an issue. Does this affect the way those with addictions are treated? Yes. The focus on whether addictive behaviours are under the voluntary control of the individual has significant implications. It does not leave room for much nuance, and we end up with a pair of contrasting models on how to treat people with addiction, a criminal and a medical one, On the first model, addiction is voluntary and therefore either chosen by the individual or resulting from their unwillingness to make an effort to control problematic consumption. Here, addiction boils down to a kind of transgression or dereliction of duty that is best tackled by strong disincentives and penalties whose role is to provide a reliable deterrence. On the second medical model, addiction is involuntary. The individual is deemed unable to exert control over this aspect of their behavior. Here, addiction is seen, like any illness, as something that happens to an individual instead of being done by them. Treatment is then called for to compensate for the lack of control over the aspects of their behavior linked to addiction. The coexistence of these contrasting models leads to an apparent dilemma in social responses to people with addiction to treat, endorsing the medical model, or to deter and penalize endorsing the criminal one. Both responses, however, imply that insofar as addiction is an illness rather than personal choice, no responsibility attaches to it. Now, of course, the underlying ambition is to avoid stigmatizing further people with addiction, and that is laudable. Nevertheless, the resulting strategy is counterproductive as it suggests that responsibility for addiction can be assessed from the third-person perspective of an impartial and expert observer without really engaging with people uh, with addiction. And in so doing, it inadvertently underlines the objectifying attitudes towards vulnerable people that it is meant to avoid. So neither model is statistictory. Criminalizing leads to unqualified blame, and over-medicalizing leads to inadvertent extremes, to inadvertent objectification, both marginalize and stigmatize further people with addiction. These extremes can be avoided by a more holistic approach to the agency of people with addiction,
going away from unhelpful questions about whether their addiction is or isn't under their voluntary control. Could you explain about the paradoxes faced by current thinking about addiction and weakness of will? Uh, sure. Uh, so these paradoxes stem from oscillating between the two contrasting models of addiction I just sketched. This is not to say that neither law nor medicine have anything to contribute to a holistic approach to addiction. On the contrary, there are very important lessons that we should integrate from both. The issue instead is that the binary notion of voluntary control that both models imply has the perverse effect of undermining further the agency of people with addiction. This becomes clear if we take on board the idea of addictive conduct as essentially conflicted to the point of being necessarily less than successful on its own term, as I argued in my book. The criminal model misinterprets addiction by turning it into a kind of objectionable or misguided achievement. That is what the person with addiction has chosen to do and ultimately to become. The medical model also misinterprets addiction by shifting it altogether outside the scope of personal agency. It is just something a person has been unlucky enough to develop. Could you explain about addiction and voluntary control? Uh, sure. I believe that the focus on uh, voluntary control in understanding addiction can be unhelpful. This is not because the notion is unimportant. It tells us something significant about a particular class of actions that look like self-contained events taking place at a specific moment in time. Many everyday actions are of this kind, making a cup of tea, getting to work, having a party. Yet, when we start thinking that all meaningful actions have that structure, we are led astray. We end up either dismissing or distorting any activity which does not fit this model, that of action as production. It prioritizes clear-cut outcomes, the bringing about of well-defined effects at a particular time. Of course, production is a core dimension of agency. However, it does not tell us the whole story. For instance, it leaves out long-term projects where actions are best understood in terms of continuous processes rather than series of events. Examples include writing a novel, studying toward a degree, or caring for a relative. With respect to this, voluntary control does not seem to be a defining feature. Instead, a kind of commitment along the lines of what I termed assertion describes better the sort of involvement that allows us to identify what's going on as the exercise of personal agency rather than sequence of loosely related events. Interpreting all actions as productions can be particularly problematic in the context of addiction. For instance, it could make the occurrence of relapses salient at the expense of the underlying process of recovery, where getting clean time and again should be encouraged. What part does rational judgment play in addiction? Like voluntary control, rational judgment may not be the best way to address addictive behaviours. In fact, these terms are sometimes used interchangeably in the literature. In such cases, the assumption is that rational judgment obviously speaks against addiction as it is harmful. So if a person with addiction can make judgment, they should also be able to abstain from problem behavior. Alternatively, 
they're either irrational or not understanding what they're doing or unable to control relevant behaviors. But a closer look at the phenomenology of addiction as revealed both by first-person memoirs as well as specialist reports paints a very different picture. There is, of course, room for clear-eyed judgment and rational planning, but also for dismay at one's own going back to disavowed patterns of behavior, overemphasizing either side, deliberateness or wanting intelligibility fails to do justice to the kind of conflicted agency that makes for addiction. What is the significance of control and intention for responsible action? So in recent years, there has been a lot of exciting work done on responsibility. And it is encouraging to see that the discussion is moving away from traditional debates on the kind of control that might be required for responsibility. In a similar vein, intentional actions or failures to act are no longer the only exercises of agency philosophers are interested in when assessing responsibility. These trends are related. As I have argued extensively in recent papers, while control and intention of course matter, they help map just segments of meaningful agency. The scope of responsibility might be even wider than that. This is a new line of inquiry which I am currently beginning to explore. Do you think that it is possible for anybody to recover 100% from addiction? Actually, I don't think that it can be possible to in any other way but 100%. If addiction is a kind of conflicted agency, as I have argued, then recovery only takes place as a result of successfully revisiting the initial conflicts between production and assertion, intending and valuing that motivates uh, addictive pursuits. And so they are either given up altogether or no longer engaged in as addictive. When this change of perspective is not achieved, addiction can be managed, but that's not really a recovery. Right. So I know with um, people who are alcoholics, they're always called recovering alcoholics. Is that because they will never recover from their alcoholic behaviour? There's always a tendency there to go back to it? Well, um, thinking about um, uh, case studies with um, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, this is precisely a way to um, uh, ensure that people do not go back to drinking. Uh, thinking of oneself as a recovering alcoholic, as somebody who is abstaining but who hasn't really resolved their problem, is part of how um, addiction uh, does not return as a problem. So there are a variety of strategies that people have developed, and uh, indeed, uh, the upshot of these strategies is whatever story we tell to ourselves, the upshot is that um, people have successfully recovered from addiction 100%. Right. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about different types of addiction? Like just off the top of my head, I can think of people who are alcoholics or people who gamble. And and also it's just recently been recognised that it is a addiction is people who are hoarders. Exactly. 
Yes. Uh, so our understanding of uh, these structures of agency are developing. But um, let me just tell you a little bit um, how I see the conceptual structure of what is going on. As it were, what is the shared background that allows us to think about these very different behaviors and very different difficulties as, as something that is of the same kind? So what I think that is important to bear in mind is that uh, this is an issue of agency that in all of these things, we need to be looking for the kind of, for a distinctive kind of structure, which we can say is being necessarily less than successful. So let me explain. Firstly, being necessarily less than successful qualifies a particular strand of a person's agency, for instance, gambling, what we might also call anocratic conduct or pursuit of goals rather than this person's agency as a whole. And secondly, being necessarily less than successful is neither suboptimal behavior nor straight failure. It points to a distinctive structure of agency, the manifestations of which cannot be fully successful to the extent that they arise at all. So the significance of this issue in understanding the cluster of phenomena I'm interested in, including addiction, but also weakness of will, becomes apparent um, if we adopt a more holistic way of thinking about action as actualization. On this holistic picture, our actions have two complementary dimensions. Production, bringing about an effect, and assertion, the agents articulating a specific commitment to theirs. When these two dimensions are well aligned, an action is successful on its own terms. Addiction, uh, by contrast, consists of actions where these two dimensions are misaligned in a distinctive way rather than just coming apart. So they, addictive actions are unsuccessful as assertions to the extent that they are successful as productions. And this dynamic can become particularly self-perpetuating. There is something recalcitrant and frustrating as a result of not addressing the initial kind of conflict that makes it for this perseverance, really, of the wrong kind. So, in a way, the way to recovery and dealing with those very different cases who are also experienced very differently, some of them are more destructive than others, the way of addressing them is really going back to the root of the problem and seeing what is at the heart of this conflicted agency that keeps expressing itself either in gambling or in problem drinking or in other kind of pursuits of which people feel very often quite alienated. Yes, the people that I've sort of known that have become hoarders or have other type of addictive behaviour have suffered quite traumatic childhood experiences. So I suppose that would be fairly common, wouldn't it? Uh, yes, and this is why I um, am a proponent of a holistic approach where we are not trying to deal with a particular issue, as it were, isolating it as being the problem or the illness or um, a specific trend that uh, somehow uh, has to be has to be 
tackled. Rather, it is engaging with a person who experiences this behavior of their own as problematic and as difficult and supporting them in resolving the situation on their own terms. Uh, quite often, it seems to me, when we look at the case studies and when I have discussed with clinicians, the difficulty is that uh, there, isn't, there isn't a common language between those who are trying to help and those who find themselves immediately tackling the problem as being their own, something that is coming from their own agency, from their own experience. Yes, that's a, that's a really good point. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already discussed? Perhaps uh, just to highlight an online resource that uh, I have found particularly helpful and might be of interest to other people who work at the intersection of philosophy and clinical practice, it is the website hosted by the International Network for Philosophy and Psychiatry, INTT, at INTTonline, one word, dot com. And also, do you have any future study plans within this field? I'm currently working on the notion of pathology of as opposed to obstacle to agency. The ambition is to provide a finer grain analysis of challenges linked to different kinds of addictions and to contrast and compare this with particular challenges that arise in the context of some mental and neurological disorders and contributing a paper on this topic to the Routledge Handbook of Philosophy of Agency, which is forthcoming later this year. Oh, that sounds great. Thanks so much for coming onto the program today. Thank you very much for having me, Beth. And I've been speaking with Dr. Libramira Rudolska about addiction and weakness of will. Hope you've enjoyed the program and do stay tuned for the wonderful Swing and Sway.